Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode one in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 5th of February. And we're back. That's right. And it's been a good break. And uh, there's been a lot happening. It's been a lot happening in the markets uh, since we've been away. Indeed, a lot happening in politics. And whether the world's any better, I'm not sure. I'm not sure at all. So now, this week, we've got a very interesting interview with Bruce Tulgan. That's right. All the way from the USA, he comes from he comes from a company called Rainmaker Thinking. And they work with companies and uh, doing coaching and developing. And he talks to us all about the next generation, Generation Z, the next generation of millennials who are coming into the workplace. Yeah, and the difficulty of employing them. That's right. And it's going to be fascinating talking to him. And then we're going to have a fascinating chat with uh, economist Steve Kakoulis. Great, Leon. Well, let's talk to Bruce. We spoke to Bruce by uh, Skype uh, with him in the United States. Bruce Tolgan, you at uh, Rainmaker, you guys at Rainmaker Thinking have been looking very closely at Generation Z, the group of uh, second wave millennials born between 1990 and 2000. Um, they're already entering the workforce and... Uh, how different are they going to be? Well, uh, time will tell. Ultimately, what we're hearing from hiring managers about the second wave millennials is that a lot of the same trends are continuing. This free agent mindset that young people don't expect to have a long term career with one established employer. Uh, of course, globalization and technology institutions uh, no longer seeming like reliable anchors of success and security, the information tidal wave. Uh, many of these factors uh, are continuing, uh, but it's also the case that the newest, youngest workforce, they really are different. Uh, they've grown up with handheld supercomputers attached to their brains all the time. Uh, and, of course, they've been raised by helicopter parents on steroids. And they've grown up uh, during an era of tremendous uncertainty uh, and constant change. Uh, so what we're hearing from hiring managers is they may be the most high-maintenance workforce yet. So, I mean, how different are they going to be from, say, Gen Y? Well, you know, those first wave millennials, they grew up in the 90s, uh, came of age in the, in, in the 2000s. So in the 90s, uh, they were thinking, wow, peace and prosperity all over the world, magical business models. Uh, remember, that was when we thought the Internet might mean you could have uh, make lots of money without even have, having services and products. Uh, but then they came into the workforce in the early 2000s. And, of course, there was a lot of bad news. Uh, so in many ways, those first-wave millennials, uh, their early career stage uh, is a story of career delay uh, and uh, frustration. But the second-wave millennials, uh, they grew up during the 2000s, uh, so they take for granted uncertainty in many ways are more like children of the late 1930s and early 40s, uh, if children of the late 1930s and early 40s were raised by helicopter parents on steroids and 
if they had handheld supercomputers from the time they were young children. I, I would imagine for a start, they would managers could not expect to be holding on to these employees for too long because they'd move around from job to job, wouldn't they? There's no question that zero to two year retention has been uh, a growing problem over the last 20 years. Uh, and the, the newest, youngest workforce, these second wave millennials, um, they are probably the biggest early career flight risk. Uh, no question about it. Uh, it's it, one of the big issues that we look at with our clients that rely on new young talent is uh, those first two years. Uh, you know, employers invest so much in developing new young talent, uh, and then they often watch their development investment walk out the door and go, you know, young people, uh, they go, they, oh, look, I worked for this employer, and they invested all this money in training and developing me, and then they go sell the, the, their employer's development investment to the highest bidder. It's very frustrating. What solutions do you offer your clients on how to handle this? I think the, the, the first thing I have to offer my clients is that we've been in dialogue with young people in the workplace for over 20 years now. So everything we have to share is based on decades of research. And I think the biggest uh, mistake that employers are making is thinking that the way to manage young people today is to humor them. Uh, they don't want to be humored. They want to be taken seriously. Uh, and uh, new young workers today, somehow employers think that a weak, hands-off management might be the solution. What we find is strong, highly engaged coaching-style management is what they respond to. Uh, I, I sometimes call it teaching-style management or parenting-style management. That, you know, young people today, they need structure and boundaries. They do have a lot of demands. You know, I don't want to work on Thursdays and I want to bring my dog to work. And uh, when do I get a raise and a promotion? But they're not looking for the world on a silver platter. Uh, what they want is managers who will guide them and direct them and tell them, hey, here's what you need to do to earn that thing you want. You don't want to work on Thursday. Here's what you have to deliver by Wednesday at midnight. So this is quite different from Gen Y, isn't it? Well, you know, the first wave millennials, um, they uh, were reared on uh, the good news of the 1990s, but then their real-life experience in the early 2000s uh, was one of uh, very bad news. So you often find those first wave millennials, you know, they came in with very high expectations, but those expectations were dashed. And remember that even though we think of the millennials as one giant age cohort, those first wave millennials, they didn't learn how to think, learn, and communicate uh, with handheld supercomputers. They were um, you know, in their teens or 20s by the time handheld supercomputers became ubiquitous. And those first wave millennials, you know, their parents were focused on building up their self-esteem, making them feel like winners, whether they were winning or losing. Uh, the second wave millennials, their parents are a little bit more aware that uh, it's a dangerous world and they want to try to give their kids uh, every advantage. So uh, they don't want them to just feel like winners. They want to try to help them win. And often, you know, the second wave millennials, you'll see their parents are practically following them into the workplace. They come to the job interview with them. 
Um, one of the most interesting new trends is uh, the 20-something brand-new employee uh, who calls uh, his or her parent or texts his or her parent um, after immediately after every meeting or sometimes during the meeting to get tips and, uh, and advice. Generally now, of course, the 20-somethings are, are still living with, at home with their parents. They can't afford to move out. Well, uh, there is, that's also a growing trend. That's exactly right. And so part of it is, of course, just due to economic reality. Part of it is because, you know, their best friends are their parents. So, you know, uh, it's sort of the best of both worlds. They have a roommate, uh, but it's a bigger room and their roommate is willing to pay. Which, of course, means managers have to take uh, their parents into account when uh, dealing with them. Yeah, that's, actually, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things we're hearing from managers is um, that sometimes they'll even get a phone call from a parent. Uh, you know, junior's raise wasn't enough or don't you realize junior's been working 60 hours a week or, you know, the, some of the decisions you're making. You know, I've been around the block a few times and, and junior's right. You should be making different decisions. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, you know, Bruce, maybe this is a sort of a development toward, back towards the extended family. Well, that is definitely looking on the bright side. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, or, or the or the, the Eban Longhouse in Borneo, something like that. You've got four or five generations in there. Yeah, well, if, if the um, uh, center of economic activity keeps uh, shifting uh, the way it is, this may be a long-term trend driven by economic reality, but maybe some of the some of the upsides will be um, more intergenerational cooperation and understanding. Right, right. And of course, uh, those challenges will be there for managers. It'll be fascinating to see how that all pans out. I'd imagine one, one final question, Bruce. Um, Gen Y actually ended up changing the workforce in many ways. I mean, we now have much more focus on work-life balance, uh, much more focus on technology, on... Um, on texting, on all of that sort of stuff. Do you um, see uh, this new wave of millennials changing the workplace as well? Yeah, I think these trends are continuing. The biggest new trend we see among the newest young workforce is this growing soft skills gap. Uh, One of the things we've been hearing more and more from hiring managers as the second wave millennials are entering the workforce um, is uh, a real gap in people skills, um, in work habits, uh, timeliness, organization, uh, basic elements of professionalism, uh, how they dress, uh, even please and thank you. So this is the biggest shift we're seeing is uh, the, the soft skills gap, uh, even among uh, high-end workers, because of course, uh, the technical skills are in such great demand that employers often don't have the ability to rule out employees with technical skills just because they apparently have weak soft skills. So I certainly that's the biggest trend we see. I certainly hope that we can fight that trend. I, I wouldn't want to see the second wave millennials usher in an end to professionalism and uh, an in-person communication kind of service and citizenship and teamwork. Uh, so I, I do think that uh, many of the trends we've seen are going to continue. Uh, the boundaryless workplace, uh, a greater emphasis on work-life balance. Of course, we're going to be uh, seeing 
continued increase in globalization and technology. Uh, but let's hope that we can fight the trend of uh, weak soft skills uh, because there's a reason those are the old fashioned basics. It's because they work. And um, so that's one trend I would like to not see continue. Which will be a big challenge for managers. Bruce Tolkien, thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you. Thanks a lot, Bruce. Yeah, pretty straightforward. You know, the Australian experience would be very similar to the American one. Absolutely. And it's going to be very, very challenging. They will be very different from Gen Y. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting, though, some of it, some of the aspects of it. I read a, a piece the other day about uh, today's lawyers. Um, the older lawyers used to do practical jokes and things like that inside the law firm. The current generation, kind of boring. No jokes, no, no nothing. No, no, they're all straight up and down. Okay, Stephen Kukoulos. That's right, Stephen Kukoulos will now talk to us about the RBA's decision and uh, what's happening in the global markets. Stephen Kukoulos, the RBA yesterday kept rates on hold at 2%. That's for the ninth month in a row. But they said they will be continuing to monitor global markets, which indicates that another rate cut might be coming. What's your view? The, the RBA has got uh, a, a slightly optimistic view of things, particularly in the domestic economy. They did signal to us that uh, the domestic economic news, things like uh, consumer spending is reasonably strong, uh, business confidence levels are above the long-run average. So in a sense, then, they're acknowledging that um, you know, the current level of very low interest rate and the lower Aussie dollar are you know, weaving their way through the economy, and that's the good news. But of course, they did flag, you know, quite obviously, that some of the global market concerns and some of the uh, problems that seem to be emerging from the falling commodity prices over the last couple of years. And you know, that market volatility is something that we're all trying to get our heads around. You know, how severe is it? Is it, is it really a change in economic news, or is it really just a market phenomenon that'll that'll eventually wash its way through the system? The other thing that the RBA noted, and the rate cut sort of uh, bias, if you like, in the final paragraphs of their statement, was that. As we saw last uh, month, the December quarter inflation numbers were very low. Um, headline inflation below 2%. The underlying measures, which the RBA look at more closely, was flat bang on 2%. So that if there was, were to be any unfortunate events on the economy or in global markets that were to impact on Australia, they were telling us that they do have scope to cut interest rates. But I think the bottom line is that they don't want to cut. They're reasonably content. The cooling in house prices is something that they're welcoming rather than fearing. And so when they look at, you know, is a 2% official cash rate doing what it should do in terms of allowing the economy to be finding a floor and to be setting up for, you know, albeit moderate but sustained economic growth through 2016, I think the RBA is reasonably content. And as I said, it, it would only be a significant change for the worst in some of the hard data on the economy for them to pull that trigger on the easing bias that they signalled. So what the RBA is saying is... Uh so far, we're sitting firm, but uh, like everyone else, we're very uncertain of where things are heading. Indeed, yes. They're mere mortals at the RBA. They're looking at this volatility in markets. And, yeah, we're, as we're seeing virtually on a daily, if not a, a weekly basis, some of these markets are moving 3 4 5%, not just on stocks, but on oil prices, often jumping 5 6 7% in a day. It's, you know, it's extraordinary. And, um, you know, on an up day, you're feeling comfortable. On a down day, you're feeling nervous. So the best is to sort of take a step back while this market volatility is unfolding. And in a sense, waiting to see what the central banks 
around the world, not just here at the, in Australia with the RBA, but you know, what is the Fed going to do? Are they seriously on hold for the next six months? You know, the, the, the negative interest rates that we're seeing in the uh, European Central Bank now and from the Bank of Japan, you know, they're, they're having an impact. You know, we saw the Japanese stock jump on the back of their very easy monetary policy there. So there's, you know, the, the RBA's got a, a dilemma watching the global markets without getting spooked by these huge daily movements, but also then looking at the hard data on the economy. And the hard data on the economy is actually not too bad. Uh, even even the Chinese, I don't know, uh, are all that uh, comfortable with what's happening in their economy. Obviously, we're getting these huge market swings, not just in um, in the Chinese markets, but things like oil. You know, it's bouncing up and down 3 4 5% every day. And uh, that's unusual for a you know, for a commodity that's actually traded, you know, remarkably um, uh, aggressive, it's got huge volumes and a deep market. So when you're getting these sorts of moves, it's telling it's telling us that the the, the investor confidence about what's happening is is very very unclear. So you know, but but having said that, you look at other commodities. You know, iron ore's back at forty three dollars a ton. So okay, it's not not booming, but it's up well on that uh, thirty eight. Uh, dollars a ton that we saw just uh, a month or so ago. So yeah, it's not all bad. And I think the RBA sort of was telling us and telling the market that it, it isn't all bad. But uh, on the balance of risks that has been evolving over the last month, many of those risks are to the downside, not to the upside. The issue, though, is that we haven't had such a bad start to the year uh, in memory. I mean, I can't remember it ever having been as bad as this. Oh, indeed. Well, the Chinese stocks are down over 20%. And uh, yeah, with the big falls in you know, even the early part of February now that we've got uh, the US market you know, down substantially too in terms of the stock market. And, and, and the other interesting thing is that the bond yields, you know, US 10-year Treasury yields are below 1.9%. And I think what we're seeing is um, you know, the effects of central bank policy still sort of working its way through the global markets. Obviously, the European Central Bank cut rates to negative uh, a month or so ago, and yeah, obviously the Bank of Japan uh, just last week cut rates to negative. So yeah, we, we do have negative yields in a growing proportion of uh, the financial markets, and certainly in, in bond yields, uh, they're actually negative. And I think that's just another <laughs> interesting phenomenon that yeah, we're not used to. It's, it's not it's not normal for bond yields to be negative, and yeah, to the extent that that forces uh, a lot of the financial institutions to lend money to the private sector rather than to lose money when they put it on deposit with the central banks. That's what the aim is, to try to get lending and therefore economic activity a little stronger. But, you know, some of these things are, uh, take a while to um, actually hit the real economy. So, you know, there's there's just so many uh, moving parts in the global markets that, are that again, are causing market watches some concern, but even central bankers are now getting a little concerned about the sustainability of uh, what uh, is going to be a, you know, a, a, a potentially difficult year for the world economy. The issue, though, too, is that uh, the Fed raised its uh, rates at the beginning of the year and, uh, or, or towards the end of the year, and uh, now, now uh, the question is whether uh, they, they weren't too soon. I mean, questions are now being raised about whether the Fed's going to raise rates again. Oh, and and of course, with all this market uh, volatility, uh, the futures market's pricing out uh, aggressive rate hikes from the Fed. In fact, yeah, immediately after the the rate hike in December, the market was pricing in, fully pricing in uh, another three rate hikes during 2016. That's been paired back to be just one, barely one. So yeah, the, the market and the Fed having postponed a, a rate hike in January are now, again, 
No, well, yeah, I'm not saying the Fed got it wrong, but uh, you know, clearly the case for more rate hikes in the US is is diminishing by the day um, as this market volatility continues. So the Fed is probably on hold. The US economy is still okay. You know, the unemployment rate's falling, inflation's picked up a you know a tiny bit from these very low levels. And in a sense, the the hard economic data rather than the financial market information, but the hard uh, data on the economy is still okay. You know, we we don't have a recession or anything like that unfolding. It's more that there's market uncertainty when you look at, you know, oil freight rates for uh, bulk shipping and these sorts of things, which is suggesting that um, that part of the economy anyway is very, very poor. You said we don't have a recession looming, but of course, uh, you are famous for making a bet with the Royal Bank of Scotland recently who who said uh, who advised all their clients to sell everything sell 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 and uh, you said that is just a load of tosh now how'd you go yes uh, so far so good look it, it's a 12 month bet and you know early days um you know the, the, again this market volatility depends which day you look at it but well I, I happen to be ahead on the 11 criteria and that was stock prices house prices some of the bulk commodity prices so you know it's a, it's a, I'm a fraction ahead, but I'm not uh, celebrating yet. There, there, there are clearly problems in the global economy. We still have a hangover from the global crisis, and we still, as we're just discussing, that have the central banks trying to inflate the economy, trying to get it growing, which is why we've got you know, negative interest rates, you know, very, very stimulatory monetary policy. That said, you know, we, one thing that makes me optimistic, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, to be honest, is that we're seeing production levels in a lot of commodities starting to be scaled back. You know, mines are being shelved, uh, outputs being wound back in some of the big um, copper, iron ore mines. We've got oil production slowing in the US because, of course, it's not viable. A lot of that uh, fracking that was occurring uh, a year or two ago is not viable at $30, $40 a barrel. So we've had, we're having a supply-side response. You know, economics works sometimes. And that supply side response is actually seeing what will probably be a, a reduction in production of these commodities. And when it works its way through the economy, prices find a floor. So it, it, it's, it's not a lay down the there that we're all good. But, you know, things like recession and sell everything just seem to be absurd. And, uh, you know, the market's already fallen a long way. You know, there's a temptation for people to get bearish at the low point of a cycle. I'm trying to be looking for the bottom and the turning point in a lot of these markets. And I think, yeah, we, we, we may be there. And, and the fact that the BOJ in Japan, ECB, and even the Fed postponing rate hikes tells me that central bankers want the economy to grow. And I'll put my money with the central bankers rather than with some analysts sitting in London. Stephen Coolers, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, what do you think, Leon? That's pretty straightforward. Well, yeah, but everyone is very, very uncertain about what's ahead. So, uh, as you said, the RBA is now just going to monitor what's happening and uh, let's just see what pans out. They're sitting there. Inflation's rising a little bit, and uh, but the economy is still pretty uh, you know, That's right. in trouble. And now the news. Well, Gary, first of all, China's official Manufacturing Purchases Managing Index, which is a gauge of the nation's factory activity, fell to 49.4 in January. That's down from 49.7 a month ago. That's adding to signs of continuing sluggishness in the world's second largest economy. The reading released by the National Bureau of Statistics on Monday marks a sixth straight month of contraction in the measure of manufacturing activity. And, uh, of course, a PMI reading above 50 indicates an expansion in manufacturing activity. Anything below 50 points to uh, a contraction. So that's a bit of a worry about China. 
Indeed, yeah, and whether we're getting the full story is another question. That's right, that's Part right. Part of the problem. That's right, and it's affecting markets worldwide. Now, uh, in the America, U.S. consumers curbed their spending in December as caution crept into Americans' purchasing habits amid signs for global economic slowdown. According to the U.S. Commerce Department, personal spending, which measures how much Americans paid for everything from sodas to haircuts, was flat in December from a month before, and consumption climbed an upwardly revised 0.5% in November and was flat in October. So that's not much. Now, Gary, the uh, the government is facing a big hurdle introducing a higher goods and services tax as part of its tax reform package, even if it comes with tax cuts and compensation for low-income earners and welfare recipients. The latest news poll shows voters oppose any GST increase. Significantly, the poll shows the government has issues convincing its own supporters that it should introduce a higher GST because a large proportion of coalition voters oppose it. 54% of voters reject any GST increase as part of a package with tax cuts and compensation. It only has supports from 37% of voters. Uh, Support for GST came from coalition voters with just over half, 51%, backing it, meaning uh, 39% were opposing it. GST hike was opposed by 69% of Labor voters, 60% of Greens. Now, the government stressed that changes to GST have been considered. No decision has been made as yet. Treasurer Scott Morrison has indicated the government's looking at a higher rate rather than broadening its base to include education and health. And Labor has spent the last few weeks campaigning against the GST, which incidentally has put the opposition leader Bill Shorten at odds with South Australia's Labor Premier Jay Weatherall, who says he's prepared to accept a higher GST as a trade-off for more health and education funding. In fact, Weatherall says he'd accept 15%. That's right. The bottom line is we are $1.2 trillion in debt. Something's got to happen. And, of course, the Australian hip pocket nerve is enormously sensitive. Very, very sensitive. But uh, despite the latest news poll showing most Australians don't want it, Treasurer Scott Morrison is convinced he can persuade them. The latest news is that uh, half the Liberals and Nationals are very, very scared, uh, particularly those in marginal seats who have been dubbed as the bedwetters. They don't want it. But um, the government's pressing ahead with its tax reform agenda, and Morrison has told the media he's ready to make the case for unpopular changes, and he harks back to the time when he was championing boat turnbacks. Yeah, I think there's a bit more support than half the population for that. That's right, that's right. Now, um, New South Wales Premier Mike Baird has proposed increasing the GST from 10 to 15% as part of a package that would include tax cuts and a proportion of the revenue, a slice, going to the states for health and education. And the increase would raise $32.5 billion a year. In the first three years, from 2017-18 to 2019, the government would keep all the money, except for $7 billion, which would go to the state to make up for cuts to health and education in the 2014 budget. And in 2020, the states could renegotiate the redistribution revenue to fund health and education over the long term. The rest of the money would be spent cutting corporate and personal income tax and compensating welfare recipients and low-income earners. It's kind of obvious somehow they've got to stimulate this economy and they've got to get more revenue. So how they do it without these uh, tax hikes, I'm not sure. No, indeed. Now, very, very bad news for the commodity sector, particularly resources companies, particularly BHP Billiton and slumping commodity prices have forced ratings agencies stand and pause to cut BHP Billiton's debt rating from A uh, to A from A plus and place the mining giant on negative credit watch. And the decision came in response to a recent slashing of S&P's price forecast for iron, oil and copper. And the negative watch coincides with a warning that S&P could cut the debt rating for BHP by another knot should its earnings results disappoint later this month. 
it will be closely watching uh, the miners' controversial progressive dividend policy as well as CapEx guidance in particular. Now, analysts are questioning the worth of maintaining the progressive dividend policy. Analysts are also tipping BHP Billiton will cut its interim dividend by 50% when it reports its results on February the 23rd. And some analysts are saying that's not going to be enough. Probably not. The The other likely casualties in all this are the banks who've uh, carrying a lot of that debt. That's right. And uh, banks have been crashing in the share market. Absolutely. Now, Australian bosses are more optimistic about the business outlook for 2016 than any time in the past three years. Um, these are the latest findings of the latest Australian Industry Group National CEO Survey of Business Prospects in 2016. Now, that's despite the significant storm clouds of volatile financial markets, falling commodity prices and a fragile global commodity. Uh, global economy. Uh, nearly two-thirds of the 250 50 businesses survey expect annual sales to improve in 2016, and overseas sales are anticipated to rise over, over a quarter of the exports, and over a third are expected to increase their staff numbers. But... Consumers have started the year more pessimistic than they have ever been before or since the global financial crisis. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Index has fallen 0.9% in the week ending January 31st. That's fallen 4.4% over the past four weeks. And consumer sentiment is 2.1% lower in January than in December. And it's it's completely wiped out the Turnbull rally. And it's uh, significant because consumer sentiment doesn't usually fall in January. It's the first time since 2008, the year of the global financial crisis, that the year started on such a pessimistic note. That's right, and it's making everybody very conservative and predictive of their uh, of their income. Levels. That's right, and meanwhile, Australia's trade deficit blew out at the end of last year, tracking the opposite direction to the expectations of economists. Um, exports from the country slumped, uh, according to figures from the ABS. The nation's trade deficit deteriorated seasonally, adjusted thirty percent to three point five billion in December, and uh, manufacturing activity in Australia has slowed slightly. Uh, but expanded for seven straight months, which is the longest unbroken run of expansion in five years. According to the Australian Industry Group's Performance of Managing Manufacturing Index for January, it's down 0.4 points to 51.5, but it's still above the 50-point level, separating expansion from accrued traction. And that's the longest unbroken run of expansion of manufacturing since 2010, Gary. So that's pretty good. It is good. Yeah, there's a bit of light there in, the, in a very dark tunnel. Now, activity in the Australian services sector, though, has contracted for a fourth consecutive month, according to the AIG. Their performance of the services index gained 2.1 points, but remained in contraction at 48.4 amid ongoing weakness in communications and wholesale trade. Now, Clive Palmer, what can we say about him, Gary? Dear Clive. Now, his troubled businesses have merged as the biggest political donors in 2015. They've given nearly $10 million to prop up his own party, the Palmer United Party, and the troubled Queensland Nickel and Mineralogy companies gave nearly $6 million and $3.6 million to the PUP last year, despite Queensland Nickel sacking 237 workers in January. That's according to the Australian Electoral Commission's annual disclosure of political donations. Palmer's now closed Coolum Resort gave the party 191113 Palmer himself donated 2000 bucks. Well, you've got to show some generosity, don't you? That's right. Well, yes, and according to Palmer was on uh, Late Line last night saying he didn't he didn't know whether he donated the money or not, but he said, Tony Jones, it doesn't really matter. I own the company anyway. 
<laughs> there are elements of Clive that look a bit like Donald Trump. Don't that's it? right. That's right. Very worrying news for Moody's Investors Services. They're saying mortgage delinquencies are set to rise in 2016 because of the slowing housing market and economic challenges, including low growth and a soft labour market. And it's warning that Sydney and Melbourne, where house prices have increased significantly over the last two years, will be the hardest hit. And according to Moody's latest review of mortgages backing Australian Prime residential mortgage-backed securities delinquencies in excess of 30 days rose to 1.2% in November. That's up from 1.14% in October, and so the trend is on. Yeah, that's right. And some people, if the trend in house prices in Sydney and Melbourne particularly uh, continue to go down, a lot of people are going to be underwater. That's right. That's right. Now, the annual rate of inflation has reached the strongest level in more than a year. It's now sitting out comfortably inside the Reserve Bank 2 to 3% target range. Consumer prices... Uh, we're up 0.4% in January, following a 0.2% rise in December. That's according to the TD Securities Melbourne Institute monthly inflation gauge. So in the 12 months of January, the inflation gauge rose 2.3%. That's the highest rate since October 2014, and it's well inside the RBA's 2-3% target range. And the result was driven by a seasonal jump in health, education, communication expenses. That's despite falling petrol prices. Meanwhile, um, this is why the RBA, meanwhile, has held the official interest rate steady at the current record low of 2% at its February board meeting, but it said persistent low inflation might leave the door open for further rate cuts. This was widely expected, or just about all the economists expect the RBA to keep rates on hold. But the RBA says it's going to be monitoring markets, and that's left the way open for another rate cut. And that's it for this week, Gary. Terrific, Leon. That's really good. Now, next week... Next week, we're talking to David Hickey from Meltwater. That's right. That'll be very interesting. That's right. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe, have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week.